Hello everyone, I am That Weems Guy here for First Person Safety and you are in for a treat tonight because we are joined by an honest to goodness bona fide professional podcaster and that is Brian Eastridge. Uh, Brian, introduce yourself to everyone. Well, uh, I think that introduction was pretty gracious. I don't know about professional podcaster. Um, somebody said you have to get paid to do something to be considered a professional, so we'll see how that goes in the next few months. But, uh, but aside from that, I guess if they don't listen to my podcast, I've, I've been a cop for 19 years and a firearms instructor for 16 of that and a few years in the military before that and PPC shooter and free gunner and IDPA shooter, you know, like a generation ago, but, uh, and, got my own training company and own EDC belt company and uh, do the off duty on duty podcast that you've been a guest on. So there you go. And returning the favor. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm wearing the EDC belt co hat today because I don't have any hats for the other companies. So uh, that, that's, that's good marketing though. You got to get, got the swag going. Yeah. And you, you caught me post rifle in service. So <laughs> So I got the Jeff Lebowski t-shirt on. So sorry, I didn't dress, uh, dress up for this, but there you go. Um, you hold a distinction of doing something in PPC as well. Don't you? Uh, I am an NRA distinguished revolver shooter, uh, for, since I think 2007. So that was, uh, that was a pretty good accomplishment. And I think, uh, the program's been around since like 1966 and, I was number 740. I don't know why I remember that, but badge number 740. And I, I don't, I think they're on about eight, 820 or 830 now. So, and that was 14 years ago. So uh, there's not, not that many. Yeah. And of course, as we talked about in, in episodes of your show that, the, you know, the revolver is just a dying thing. It's, it's making a comeback in some ways and it's dying of, of, certain aspects of it are dying a slow death. So it's, you know, it's, it's sad and, and innovative at the same time. I mean, but uh, the the bigger thing is I just, I don't see ammo companies putting a lot of effort into revolver ammo anymore. Right. So it's kind of a, a disappointment, but you know, yeah, we're starting to see bulk nine millimeter on the shelves around here, but I still can't find 38. Yeah, and the last prices I paid for 38 ammo, I was I was kind of kind of an eye opener, uh, and uh, the days of finding gold medal match sitting on the shelves at Walmart, are, I think those days have come to a close. So, yeah, all so right, that's a little sad. But. Yeah, that is. The other night you put something on the internet that uh, tended to upset some people, and I thought whether well, we would give it further exposure on the internet so that we can upset even more people. And that was something to do with the whole notion of the sub one second draw. Why don't you tell everybody about your post and well, we got it started. So I, I have this, uh, this real knack for posting something on the internet uh, or on Facebook or Instagram, whatever um, yeah. that seems to be a bit inflammatory. And generally it's not that I'm trying to be inflammatory, but if you look at the people that post in the comments, it tends to get the attention as some, uh, you know, like Robbie Latham on that post posted, well, I guess I'll slow down then. And, uh, 
you know, just kind of in, in jest and, mm-hmm. and, uh, but I, I posted this quote from a mutual friend of you, you and I's who shall remain nameless, uh, cause he didn't give me permission to quote it, but, uh, but he said, man, you show me a guy that, that's, that runs a sub second draw. I'll show you a guy that should probably be practicing something else. And that incensed a lot of people. And I thought, and there was some good inspiring conversation that came from it. And some people shared it on forums and stuff. And I it, oh. it spread like wildfire. And I went, I think I broke the internet or something, but, um, but it, it did inspire a lot of encouraging, like back and forth between a lot of people that I really respect as instructors and shooters. So, uh, and it, and it was really aimed kind of more towards the concept or the context of like concealed carry, um, guys shooting out of a USPSA rig. Yeah. Get, you know, get after it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're not shooting really a retention system that does anything more than hold the gun. Um, and that's a that's a key part of that sport. Whereas for the the concealed carrying populace, that's kind of a it's kind of a goal that's really not all that realistic. Um, and, and I don't mean it's not something you should aspire to, uh, but it's you know in a can setting. Okay, uh, yeah, okay. Let's pull a sub second draw from an appendix rig that's really neat but it's just it's nothing i've ever seen that has uh that i've wanted to put all that much effort into if that makes sense yeah it's it's one of those things that the people that can accomplish it and god bless them for developing that skill for being able to do it um one is that's a sub-second draw to a known stimulus with no decision making and as you and i well know in the real world out and you know the average concealed carrier there's a lot of decision making that has to take place before even that draw would begin and that doesn't happen with the buzzer or the targets turning or the whistle blowing you know that's not a known stimulus it's going to be an unknown stimulus that has to be processed uh you and i are both cops and we, we see the same thing that the average citizen would see in that type of situation um typically if you're involved in a shooting and the gun the incident started with your gun in the holster uh well the shooting portion of the incident started with your gun in the holster you were probably behind the eight ball yeah and yeah i made a, a a comment on there later about you know any time that i've been in a situation where a gun's come into play i've already had it in my hand now you and i are in the uh the prisoner taking business Right. I mean, that's, that's what we do is, uh, we, we pluck, we pluck weeds from the Lord's garden to use the parlance of Wayne Dobbs and, and place them into some type of confinement. Right. And generally, if we perceive the threat that there's even a potential for lethal force to, to be employed, we're already going to have the gun in our hand in some fashion. Um, so the draw speed thing really doesn't come into play, but how many cops do you ever see that practice from a low ready? They're almost always drawn from a holster and on the quasi armed citizen side, it's almost polar opposite. You see a lot of people practicing from low ready, high ready positions, uh, retention positions. And 
the holster part it seems to be a little more practical for that aspect so that we don't get into the whole brandishing and right. um but there again it all boils down to like you said it's like the decision making portion and i am all for if somebody's got a consistent sub-second draw from concealment that's great i just if you got it it's time to move on let's do something else let's let's learn to you know make decisions while we're engaged in some type of training right right uh shoot no shoot decisions uh muzzle awareness you know and cops are notorious for flagging people with a muzzle it just it happens it's not acceptable but it's 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 a reality that happens sometimes guns get pointed at people that probably they probably shouldn't right but we should strive to you know eliminate that but uh on the armed citizen side it's like how difficult is it to set up a scenario with live ammunition that you have to make decisions? There's just very few people that really put a lot of emphasis on that. So, and that's a very uh, worthwhile endeavor and it's a very difficult, say, uh, training to accomplish, but it's, and very few people seem to be training that method. It's all speed, 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 accuracy, accuracy, accuracy. That's great. There's a whole nother level to this whole shooting thing. And it's when to sh- not, can I shoot better? Or can I do these things better? But when to shoot better and knowing how to do these things better in the context of armed conflict, right? Right. You know, th- there's no penalty on the range for, muzzling a no-shoot target but there very well may be repercussions for that in the real world for muzzling someone that you shouldn't be pointing a gun at right there's there's very serious repercussions for that um i mean the 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 folks that were out brandishing firearms in their front yard when the riot you know the armed mob came through you got to see that firsthand you know um you know they pled to some lesser charges but the bottom line is they spent six months charged with a felony right you know? i mean is what it is <laughs> yeah um I, I this whole thing that has turned into a show uh kind of got started with me challenging some some conventional wisdom that's being put forth about red dots that sites you know red dot sites mounted on pistols or pistol mounted optics and, you know, one of the early responses I got to that was, but cops point, pe- point guns at people all the time. I'm like, yeah, and that's a problem. And that because we, they may do it all the time, does that make it the right thing to do or the legal thing to do? Yeah. And there are like Oklahoma has some statutory exemptions for police officers in the line of duty with the, the, the kind of, um, negate some of the pointing of firearm type charges that maybe the average citizen would have um the threshold for the threat of imminent danger is much lower is basically the way to sum it up you know if i think there's a bad guy in a building i don't have to like ask permission to pull my gun out and go search for that person um average you know armed citizen there's no obligation to go get the bad man you know, so consequently, there's some statutory language that um, the pointing of fire gives you some exemptions for pointing a firearm. 
Um, with the advent of body camera, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I feel like the day is coming that there's going to be a some prosecutory, prosecutorial body that reviews footage and goes, why was that officer pointing that gun at that person? Yeah. Does that meet the threshold of this exemption? Uh, things that we've never had to deal with before. Um, and that's not to say that that's an, that's an excuse or that that stuff was acceptable in the past, but uh, I think the uh, the bar has been raised for performance, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. And it's it's something that, uh, quite frankly, it's a bar that needs to be raised. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, <laughs> the days of pointing a gun at a misdemeanor, pulling the, you know, convenience store beer run are probably coming to a close, yeah. um, you know, which – I, I can't think of too many rookie cops 10 years ago that wouldn't have, wouldn't have done that. But there again, did that make it right at the time? No, but it was just part of, I don't want to say culture, but it, I, I don't even know how to really put that one into words, but you know, I mean, I've seen, a, I've seen a lot of that over the years and it's not that there's any malice or ill intent. It's just, that's the way people's mindset was. Well, there's somebody running. Um, why are they running from me? Maybe yeah. I should have my gun in case this turns into a confrontation. So, hey, you, know, you you mentioned the you know the misdemeanor misdemeanor fleeing. The Supreme Court just changed the rules on that. What three weeks ago? That you know they expressively said there there is no rule that allows to the the hot pursuit chasing a misdemeanor into a residence. Yeah. And, and uh, I was a, aware of a case out of Oklahoma where, um, that, <laughs> that very situation came up, uh, on a, uh, pursuing a motor vehicle, somebody fleeing in a motor right. vehicle that bails out, they lose sight person, is seen in a house door gets kicked in bad guy gets arrested um that ended up getting thrown out because well all you had at the time was a misdemeanor and if you saw that person in that house later after contact was lost it wasn't fresh pursuit at that point then to go get that person a search warrant would have had to been obtained well who's gonna you know at 10 o'clock at night on a saturday what judge is going to go? Yeah, that's okay. Traffic charges. Yeah, go kick that guy's door in and get him. Right. You know, and that's one of the hardest things that I I think a lot of policemen struggle with is uh, there's a time that you have to let people go, and that is not in our nature. It's just not. Right. And there's sometimes the criminals just get away. And you have to think out of the box and be smarter about the way that you, uh, you address that. Uh, whereas, you know, in the eighties, nineties, and even into the, the two thousands, Oh, bad guys in that house, go get him. We don't know that he lives there or not. Um, you know, somebody, somebody told us a felon was in that house. Let's go get him. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't think you're going to be wrong with a search warrant, you know? Yeah, 
it's never wrong to stop and get the search warrant. Never. No. And, but that's a hard, uh, uh, for a lot of guys, especially in our profession, especially younger guys, it is really hard to, to, to put the dogs on a leash, so to speak, because, you know, you just, you take that job because you have the nature of wanting to do right and wanting to, uh, make bad people not do bad things to good people or, you know, victimize the public. And there's just sometimes you have to step back and go, we'll get them another time or we'll get them later. Um, and that's, that's really difficult. I mean, I've been faced with those situations and I'm like, Oh, that dude is standing in the window of his house, you know, communicating to me with one finger and there's not a thing I can do about it, but drive away. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, back to firearms for a minute and one of the, the current trends. And, I, and I'm going to put you on the spot here just for the enjoyment of our audience. And the other night, you and I had a phone call that we should have recorded because that would have been three great podcast episodes for both of us. Um, if I understood you correctly, you said that you knew of three officers who have been involved in shootings that had red dots on their pistols that now no longer carry red dots on their guns. Is that correct? Yeah. One, and these are not people from my agency. Right. Um, yeah. And they were three kind of, uh, and I won't cite the cases cause, uh, a couple of them are still in litigation right. and, uh, there was, it was really kind of surprising to me because one, one of them in particular had been in multiple shootings over the, the past, you know, 20 some years. And, uh, his last one involved a red dot. And, uh, shortly after he was like, well, you know, maybe I need to get more training with it. And he's kind of floats back and forth with irons and a red dot. Uh, the other two, one of them had a complete failure and, and that's, something that I see that's endemic in the industry and I am not anti red dot. I'm not. Uh, but when we want a solution, we will find it. And we, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the first thing you learn in a statistics class is that you can make statistics sound however you want to make them sound, right? Uh -huh. You can make, you can drive them to whatever narrative you need. And, it seemed to me that ever you know the whole industry jumped in full feet head first um with without some due caution and i think there there are some instructors out there that are doing a fabulous job of of training people how to how to employ those um but you know you and i well know in law enforcement there's a new gadget there's a new flashlight out everybody's uh -huh. got to get it you yeah. know there's a there's a new single pane holographic site that shall remain nameless. That was on at like every rifle in America that 10 years later, rut row, there's a problem yeah. uh, that we knew about, but didn't say anything to anybody about And hindsight's 2020. Uh, but, uh, but of course, because it was so effective at what we did, we just kind of went, well, you know, so what if it doesn't hold zero, we're just zero, zero rifle. You know? Yeah, um, and that's kind of how I was with the the red dot. So, with 
talking to these people that had been involved in incidents to one of them was like, I'll never again. Nope. I'm done with it. Uh, one of them was like, I'm mixed. The other one was kind of mixed opinion. Um, pretty much all three of them blanket said that it had no bearing on the outcome, like zero bearing. Both of them or all three of them survived. All three of them were successful. It was just, it, it gave them pause, so to speak. Right. Um, because it, the brain does weird things when you're under high stress, right? So a couple of them said, oh, I never saw the dot. It could have been there. Um, couple, the, the one said, never saw it, but I could see the impact of the round. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't an issue, but it had no bearing on the outcome of the, the shooting. It wasn't, well, I perceived all this data and I was able to make more accurate shots and I was able to perform better because of this piece of equipment. All three of them were like, yeah. It kind of goes back to the whole, well, I never saw my sights, but I knew what I knew they were there kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that whole thing about the, the, you'll see more data and everything else. And while I do think that's true on the square range and it may eventually translate over into the field, a lot of that's justification to sell red dot transition courses to agencies. Could be. Um, Yeah. I, that that to me goes back to that statistics class. Well, we can make the data show what we want you to read. Um, and I'm not knocking people that have done white papers about it. I think right. there's some really valuable stuff there. Um, the places and, and there's there's a few places that I see it has a massive benefit. Um, reduced targets, non full value targets mm-hmm. inside of close distance uh and i'm i'm referring to what we in the cop world used to call the old hostage shot right like i gotta make a shot inside of five inside of 10 yards that needs to be a lethal shot right now or or a potentially fatal shot right now putting you know putting around in somebody's dome at seven yards that under stress with iron sights becomes a very tall order uh and with the red dot, I see, okay, there's a large benefit there because you're seeing a very finite, perfect sight picture. The speed aspect of it is not a factor at that point, right? Right. I mean, it may be rushed, but but if I've got time to make a precision shot with irons, I'm going to have time to make a precision shot with, with uh, a dot. So I do see it. It has some inherent benefit. Right. Uh, the, the things, some of the things and some of the justifications like, well, the military, there's units in the military that, uh, you know, use these effectively and, and, uh, they've done more popular, they've done more damage to the, the evil population than Ebola did, you know, when I get it right. Uh, the difference between them and I is those guys, but typically before they're going to leave to do a, some type of mission they're going to confirm zero on the rifle and the red dot. When I drive out of the station parking lot, it, it it may be a month before I get to shoot my gun again. Um, so there's, there's that aspect. There's to me, there's been no perfect solution for, I can bolt this on my gun and have predictable at there's always some kind of huge learning curve about, well, 
you dismount the batteries and the torque spec here. And if you use the rubber gasket that make it's all wrought with ambiguity. And uh, I'm waiting for the day that they go, here's the gun, here's the dot. It mounts in a manner that you don't have to put these, you know, 40 thousandths taller suppressor height sights. And, um, you know, you don't have to worry about, am I carrying a brand X battery versus a brand Y battery versus is it waterproof? Is it water resistant? You know, there's just a lot of stuff out there that make me go, you, you guys in the industry figure that out and then I'll, I'll drift over the, I'll, I'll, I'll step across the line and we'll, you know, it'll, all the bugs will be worked out. You know, I don't drive a model a car. I try not to fly in a model a airplane. Um, you know? Yeah. You know, on the square range, I'm loving the precision that I'm getting with the dot. Mm -hmm. I absolutely thoroughly loving it. And I have diagnosed some things in my shooting that I was not seeing with the iron sights. Um, so one last little topic I want to want to hit on this with the red dots, especially for the cop world. There's a growing body of evidence of duty holsters that have gaps in them because of the weapon mounted lights that are allowing trigger fingers to or foreign objects to work their way into the holster and access the trigger. There was a video of one uh, in Vegas last week, I think, that, that started hitting the Internet. As you look at duty gear that is available for you know uniformed cops that have red dot mounted or pistol mounted optics, try to find one that doesn't also come for weapon mounted light. Yeah, and I I personally know of somebody that that had their firearm discharged in the holster unintentionally. Yeah, uh, even by the this the suspect. I as far as I like I knew. The guy wasn't trying to get the officer's gun out of the holster. His hands just ended up, you know, in the yeah. tussle being in there and pow, um, which caused, you know, memos and policies, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, admin sure happened. Yeah, admin <laughs> happened. And, yeah. uh, you know, lots of Allen wrenches came out. And, you know, right. um, and that's one of the other places. Uh, you know, weapon-mounted lights, I think they're a phenomenal tool. Right. Um, I am really enjoying that they have started to streamline those. But there mm -hmm. again, like you said, some of the holsters, when you have a light that's bigger than the firearm on the front, right. you know, they don't make those. They make the holsters dimensional, but they're two-dimensional. So they have to, like, accommodate everything else. Mm -hmm. And there tends to be some gaps around the trigger. Um at the time that happened, I was carrying a, a 226 double action SIG, and you couldn't, the way mm -hmm. my holster was cut, you couldn't get your finger in far enough to, and it had the, uh, the hood. I'm not going to throw brands out there because right. like that, but it had a hood that prevented the double action hammer from actually getting back far enough to, tr to fire. Right. So I went non-issue. Uh, and people laughed at me for carrying a double action, single action gun. Like, Oh, that's archaic. And I'm like, well, you know what? My gun didn't go off in the holster. Yeah. Uh, not saying that that was why I carried it solely, but, right. um, plus one, you know, so, and I've just, uh, it's funny. We went from sub second draw to red dot. And yeah. Those two things seem to go hand in hand mm -hmm. for some reason too. Um, right. And I, and 
for me, when I look at that and see that, I go, well, okay, that's a proof of concept that you can be as fast with iron or as fast with a dot or faster than you can be with irons at reasonable distances and, um, you know, reasonable, uh, a reasonable value target. So, Hey, more power to them. That's, that's awesome. Um, how about we, you know, maybe learn to drive that dot from a Sewell position or from, uh. you know, a low ready or, you know, something and, and make a decision while we're doing it. I mean, and you know, everything's in building blocks. So, but yeah, but yeah, yeah right. that, well, go ahead. It's just like, you know, right now, most of the training is centered around uh, the presentation of the dot to the target because it's, that's the, the hardest part to learn. And as we well know, the stuff you're talking about as far as de- decision making, that's a weak point in the law enforcement in the private sector training anyway. So much less many, trying to add it into something else. Right. So how many times do you think in a career, and you've been doing this a little longer than me, how long how many times do you think you speculate that you've drawn your gun from the holster? Oh thousands. As far as like just drawing and shooting and training or drawing no, in the I'm field. About in the field. In the real. field. Uh, of course, you got to understand 12 of my 22 years have been spent you know, in admin land. Right. Uh, um, I'm probably 50 or so. Okay. Yeah. I, I, and of course, I haven't worked a big city like, like you have. Well, yeah, but okay. Yeah. So 50 times in those yeah. 50 times that you drew, did you present to the target and pull the trigger through? No. I, uh, I have discharged my firearm one time, uh, on duty, uh, on Cujo, Uh (laughs) I wasn't the dog's real name, but it was like a 260 pound St. Bernard that had chewed a man's tricep off. Uh, and, and I'll, uh, we talk about decision-making this really, I've told this story a few times and I go, when I exit my police car, my partner's yelling for backup. There's a man laying on the ground with arterial spurt screaming, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. Not saying shoot the dog, saying shoot him. Yeah. When I get out, I see the man's grievous injury. And when I get out, there's another man holding a splitting mall. He doesn't see me. I'm behind him at about 10 yards. So guns coming out and the challenge is getting ready to be issued for this. What appears to be person that, has an implement that could have caused this injury and before i can get the words drop it out of my you know out i notice he's focused in on an area of this yard and about that time my partner comes out bailing out backwards glock in one hand taser in the other being pursued by this massive dog and i mean the the old movie cujo blood in the Uh vein and all yeah i'm like it it was freakish so okay, I've now eliminated that this person did not do this to this person. My partner's focused on this aggressive animal. He's at about 30 yards. I close the distance. He runs at an angle and I step plant and do a, do a presentation from basically uh, like a compressed high ready and fire five rounds, score five hits on this dog while it's moving. I'm moving partners moving out of the way and all of this happens in a matter of less than probably five seconds. I mean, it was just assess this threat. It's no longer a threat. Move to the next threat. 
eliminate that threat. And now, okay, there's not a person involved in this. It was just this, this thing did this to, and about the time the shooting's done, I hear, did you shoot the, did you get the dog? And I'm like, okay, we've made the right decision here. Uh And I look back, guy with the ax is gone never to be seen again. I don't know what happened to him. He just, you know, was a good Samaritan that um, could have potentially been looking down the muzzle of a gun. Right. The draw speed was not a factor. It just wasn't. Uh, and the presentation didn't start from the holster. It started from up here. Bam. Um, so I look at how many times I've drawn my gun in a street setting and i can think of zero times that i would present from the holster and fire a shot do i practice it yeah i mean it's a it's a thing it could happen right but there's way more probability that i'm going to have to do some processing and decision making before go to the holster defeat this that and the other bring it up bring it up into eye line drive it to the target that all that rarely happens from the holster like it's in the law enforcement context rarely um you know i I, traffic stops yeah i think that's probably where it probably happens Uh the most but or in an attempt to take someone in actual custodial arrest when you're going to put the handcuffs on and and then some type of lethal threat ensues um in the ones that i've seen in that and thank God for body camera footage because uh-huh. we start to get this data is typically there. The draw, the draw comes in as soon as I'm able to make distance. Uh-huh. The officer is able to make distance. Is the speed a factor in that? Maybe somewhat, but it's more the mechanics of it. Uh-huh. I bring it in. I get it in a you know a compressed, uh, like a a retention position shooting from retention while I'm grappling with someone. Right. So you see that, but flat footed 10 yards hands in a surrender position, buzzer yeah. draw to first shot. That's not real. That's not life. That's a right. mechanics exercise. Right. And I see people get real wrapped around the axle about, man, I'm shooting one fives. I'm shooting one fours. I'm shooting one point threes. Okay. Move on. Like (laughs) you got it good. Um, And and I don't know why that has become a barometer in police work and defensive carry. Um, Because it's something we can measure standing on the range. Yeah. And again, I'm not knocking it. It's just, if that's where you're spending the bulk of your day, brother, the first time you get punched in the nose, that sub-second draw is not a thing. Right. It's, <laughs> you know, have some fighting skills, have some decision-making skills, have the ability to have combat patience and take in a situation as it's starting to unfold and start going through Colonel Boyd's loop of how do I address this? Um, you know, let's look at Cooper's combat triad and go, okay, all these things, are they in balance or – is the sub-second draw in the, you know, marksmanship skills, is that so far to one side of the triad that I forget the whole mindset part or, you know, the gun handling and tactics part? Is that is, is that suffering because I'm spending all my efforts and ammo over here? 
And a lot of the time with people I train with, um, and Daryl Bulky really gave me a bunch of info on like Cooper's combat triad. And really, it's amazing that, you know, in 1972 or whenever he came up with that, I haven't found any barometer that's better for measuring yourself and your personal skills uh, in a combative setting. So I see these guys just incessantly practice one piece of that to the point that the others suffer so bad. They're not even, they're not even addressed or really, you know, so, and that's kind of what inspired that whole post that apparently uh, red flares (laughs) went up and people were fast roping out of helicopter, whatever. Uh, I'll say this in my time as chief, we had three deputy involved shootings and all three the deputies had their firearms already in their hands at the time. None of them were, now one was involved with a rifle and the other two were pistols, but the deputy, everyone, each one of those, the weapon was at the ready when the actual shooting incident began. And while, you know, I guessed at the number 50 is the number of times I've actually drawn the, the weapon in the field. I've had three instances in which I was stone cold justified uh, to engage in deadly force or deploy deadly force mm-hmm. uh, I, I haven't done that because we were able to resolve those situations in all three of those instances the gun was in my hands it wasn't a presentation from the, well there was a presentation from the holster but it was not at the time the decisions were made right. and you know while that's only six incidents and it was completely anecdotal you know it's pretty strong anecdotal evidence it's, and it's not empirical by any means, and I'm not trying to claim it is. Right. But that seems to be, to me, the more shining reality than. Beep. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. Uh, John Hearn and I, in a previous episode, he d- discussed Gary Klein's, excuse me, Gary Kleck's research. And, you know, one of the things he talks about was the vast number of defensive gun uses in which no shot was fired. But the situation resolved, and what we're meaning by that was the number of times that people actually drew a weapon, but they ended up not shooting, which means there was an intermediary step in between the firearm being accessed and the decision to make to shoot being made. And, yeah, I, you know, I think that tends to boil it out. It, it does. And, and uh, you know, of the, I've, I would say in the LE context, other than, you know, terminating someone's pet, uh the uh i've probably drawn my gun 250 times uh several and i i've lost i used to kind of track my personal stuff but i i decided you know what i'd rather just an attorney track that for me yeah. so, you know you know what i'm saying like i, I didn't want to have like records and file folders of 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 incidents but um probably 35 40 of them complete would have been completely justified uh and this is something that if i could ever get every cop in america to understand uh and scott reitz does does a pretty good uh, speech on it but the more confident you are and the better equipped you are with your handgun or whatever sidearm you're issued the more proficient you are 
the further you can let a situation digress and deteriorate before you have to employ lethal force. Yeah. Um, and consequently, a lot of your cops that are, you know, they go into their own pocket for their training budget, part portions of it. Uh, they seek out other training. They shoot competition. They get uh, a degree of proficiency with, with their sidearm that could only be described as obsessive uh, in other uh, you know, maybe other aspects of life, the less risk they are of shooting someone, mm-hmm. even in a situation where it could be completely warranted, uh, because the gun is no longer the skill level needed to employ the gun is no longer a factor. An expert has an automatic use of the tool, Bill Lewinsky. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and that is something that. You know, if I had a magic wand, I could wave over every cop in America. It would be like, dude, the gun in your holster means a lot more than the pin in your shirt. It'll save your life. It'll get you sued or it'll get you put in prison. That's the three outcomes you're looking at. Sometimes it can do all three in one shot, you know, in one setting. Um, And the perception that you saved your life becomes the, you know, the, the tricky point. But you have a one in three odds that it's not going to go in your way. That's like the forward pass in football. Yeah, is it going to be a completion, an incompletion, or an interception? Right. It's like I, it's like the conversations I had. Uh, you know, when I'd buy a gun when I was married. Well, mm-hmm. my wife will either get over it or she won't. That's the two <laughs> options, right? Like. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently she didn't because it was the when i was married Twice. so yeah but but all that to say yeah. if you could if you could re- like if you could change the cultural mindset to go um you know and i like i play guitar i'm not a master by any stretch but i don't i but i have the confidence to know my know my left and right limits with that <laughs> right if you took the handgun as seriously as as you took you know, a hobby fishing or whatever, um, man, your odds of having to deploy that go way down. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with defensive tactics, handcuffing, things like that. The more proficient we get at those, uh-huh. things, the less risk we are. And I have a oh, dear, yeah. friend, dear friend that works for uh, CCW safe now is probably one of the most lethal human beings I've ever met was involved in very few use of force situations. And when he was, they were incredibly violent, incredibly fast and over before anybody knew what, right. Whoa, what was that? And the um, handcuffs are on. And, and you touched on something on that handcuffing skills. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. That, that, that's probably more important than, than anything else. Cause the, the, the crazy stuff you see out there where people trying to put the cuffs on and, and their confidence that, opens up windows and opportunities that should not exist that that is the moment when you and the bad guy both know where each other are exactly and uh that is probably where 90 percent of the fights i've gotten into started and, uh, yeah but uh hopefully, well now, man, we we went through some rabbit holes man right well, now we know where our next episode will begin because it's going to begin with the talk of handcuffing um, or something along those lines. Uh, look, dude, I know you got to go. I enjoyed talking with you as always. 
And any closing final thought which you want to share with the audience? Um, yeah, if you're, uh, if you're, con- <laughs> Hanny McMood and I had, uh, had this conversation the other day, we said, you know, at one five, I'm get 1.5 seconds. I'm good. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm on par in 1.7. I can pick which eyeball you need to get shot in. Mm-hmm. That comes from knowing your skill set, right? Knowing it, testing it, practicing it. And that is consistent, cold, on-demand performance. Uh-huh. Right? There and you go. Me, there, every gunfight that every human being's ever been involved in has been on-demand performance, cold. There was right. no warm-up. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of my final spiel for the night. All right, cool. And uh, folks, this is uh, Brian Eastridge of the Off Duty On Duty podcast and the uh, EDC Belt Company. So make sure you give both of those uh, a check out online and uh, buy one of his belts and listen to his podcast. And uh, hopefully he'll be back on on this show, which is again a complete and total accident. Uh, so, but well, it seems to be working. So, folks, I do sincerely appreciate you uh, for your time and. Uh, you know, check us out. The The show will be posted on YouTube and on all the various uh, podcast platforms under That Williams Guy uh, on the podcast. So again, thank you for your time. And I'm Lee for First Person Safety. Thanks, Lee.